You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I'm your host, John Gordon, and my guest today is someone I just spent some time with. Uh, we we're filming some DU Nation content again on the, on the Texas coast. A lot of folks out there, you've seen his work. He's uh, He's been a contributing photographer to Ducks Unlimited magazine for many years, so a lot of his images have been taken from right here in that same Texas middle coast area that we were at. And he's also runs what I consider to be not only in Texas, but around the country, one of the top duck clubs in America, Thunderbird Hunting Club. So welcome to the podcast, Todd Steele. Thank you, John. Um, glad, glad to be here and hopefully I can help some folks out there with their, their duck pond. What we covered really in DU Nation, folks, was behind the scenes of habitat management, especially more soil unit habitat management, which is primarily the thing that Ducks Unlimited is involved in. And we've, we've through the Texas Prairie Wetlands Project, have been involved with quite a few projects, Todd, over the years. Uh, do you remember how many that we've done with Thunderbird? Oh, I've got a guess it's probably at least two dozen. And, and you know, when we talk about a duck pond, too, you know, we, we have some projects that DU has helped us build um, that are probably knocking on the door of 100 acres. So, I mean, you go around the country and some people fish in lakes that are only 100 acres. So that kind of gives you an idea how big these things are. I want to say if you took all our habitat together right now that we flood, which is close to maybe 2,000 acres, if you take took all those ponds and stacked them side by side, you're talking about an area probably five to six square miles wide. So it, it takes a lot of effort to build them, maintain them, and keep them going. Isn't that the truth? It, it yeah, y'all have a tremendous amount of habitat down there, and, and hold a tremendous amount of ducks. I've been fortunate enough to to hunt on one of the properties, actually two of the properties in the past, and I tell you that I can tell everybody out there that the hunting was outstanding. So I, I wanted to talk about the club, you know, real quick, just to start out with. How long has it been in existence? 
Well, close to 40 years and, and kind of give you a background on how it kind of all started. Um, I was a commercial diver back in the 70s and 80s, and there was a slump that hit the wool field at that time. And one of the friends that I was duck hunting with on another club, we weren't real happy with how the club was being ran. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, we start a rain club. And he said, you're kind of somewhat out of work. You know, what do you want? Would you be willing to do that by financing you on the, the first go around? And I thought about it overnight. And it probably wasn't even overnight. It was kind of like immediately I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to go out there and try to uh, form a club and, and provide not just you know, only for myself, but for others. And as as the years progressed, um, providing good hunting for myself was not as important as providing good hunting for others. It was um, it, it, a little bit of philanthropy, so to speak. I mean, you get so much more satisfaction out of watching a little boy and his father come in with this first duck hunt than I'll ever get by shooting a woman in backs within 30 minutes. Um, and as the years progressed, uh, that that desire to provide good hunting for others just kind of manifested itself and got stronger and stronger to work. Well, now it's, it's pretty much my driving force. And I, I need to include, you know, my family and the manager of the club. I mean, they're all in it with me. It's just not my, it's not a one-man show. It's, it's those guys, you know, helping me as we go through this process every year. You know, get to spend some, some time with your wife, Nancy, uh, last week was really great. I know she's she's a real driving force behind the club. Well, the club wouldn't, wouldn't exist. She wasn't supportive of this. And uh, um, go quick story on my wife real quick. I actually met her in a rice field um, at the time. She was with another fellow at the time. And it, as fate kind of happened years ago, years passed, we finally got together. But her first duck hunt, we had thousands and thousands of pintails coming into uh, a flooded rice field. It was just phenomenal. I was back in the days when pintails were seven, eight, seven, eight million birds, and uh, the glory days of Texas coast, right? Yeah, yeah. I still, I still remember those days. But, but that that we had two hunts that year that were like that. That uh, pintails just just came in, and it would just. Your jaw dropped when you saw that. Well, anyway, that was her, her first hunt, and and she, <laughs> I remember walking the field. There, well, that was kind of fun. She can only go downhill from there. Well, she had, she's had some good hunts since since then. You know, a lot of really good hunts. But but I said, man, I said you just if you just watch something that maybe a once in a lifetime experience to, to see something like that. You know. So anyway, that's kind of a memory that my wife and I have. Right, and I know your sons are, are highly involved in it as well, and I know your son Forrest is about to be the the, the chapter chairman at the Aggieland chapter of Texas A&M. Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. He's, uh, he's getting geared up for that. He's actually heading down here right now to help me with some habitat, work around the lodge, which never stops, and, and uh, uh, he'll be down here for three or four days helping me, and then off and on throughout the summer, both, both the boys are down here, and my wife is uh, by my side throughout this whole process. She works remote, so you, you kind of saw firsthand. She had her computer out there, you know, working at her other job, and uh, and she is by my side, you know, pretty much through this whole process. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have a you know family affair like that. You know, you've got your wife, your sons helping you out. It makes it easier to get it all done. Plus, it's more enjoyable. I'm sure. Oh yeah, yeah, and the, you know, and she understands the uh, the trials and tribulations of doing this. You know, it's it's uh, it's never a smooth road. It's got all kinds of curveballs throughout the whole season that you got to deal with, and not not just from a habitat standpoint, but a duck standpoint, a hunter standpoint. You're dealing with uh, a tremendous amount of variables that are thrown into a big melting pot. That you got to deal with to keep this thing going. So. Right, and how many members do you have right now? Well, we don't really discuss that, God, but but we have. Let, let's just say we have over seventy members. Put it that way. So that's what I thought. And most of these folks are from the Houston area. Am I correct? Yeah, I mean, there there there's a few that fly in. Believe it or not, from um, South Carolina. Um, we got a few from Dallas. Um, one from San Antonio. 
but for the most part, they're from um, Houston. And, you know, as a club was kind of evolving, you kind of listen to what the members want. You know, in other words, you're not going to you're not going to survive if you don't provide them um, a, a good quality experience and something that they, they pay for. And, 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 you know, all this this club does not exist without these members joining this club because they provide the money. I, you know, I, I, uh, I want to say we're probably our budget now is, is knocking on the world three quarter of a million dollars to run this thing. It's, it's not cheap. And, um, and we won't be able to do it if the members weren't joining the club. So, um, so over the years, we've kind of watched what they like to do. And, uh, back in the heyday, when we had snow geese all over the place down here, the members did not want to hunt snow geese. They wanted to hunt ducks. And so that was kind of the business model from day one is we want to shoot ducks. These are a lot of work. And we like to go out there and throw out some duck decoys, shoot ducks, and not not get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and put out a thousand ride. And, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and, it, and it hasn't changed. And, and, of course, now we've lost all our geese down here for the most part. And, and so, you know, you take 40 years of doing this, um, and just kind of concentrating on ducks. And to be honest with you, when the geese do move in, sometimes they're um, trouble because they're like a big lawnmower and they can hit a duck pond and you get 30,000, 40,000 geese on a duck pond and they can hit that food pretty hard within two or three days. And so now we don't really have that problem. And so it's up to the ducks of whether they're going to eat themselves out of house and home. But boy, those geese can do it. Yeah, like I said, in two or three days. Oh, so. I, I've seen it firsthand. A pond basically disappears. There's nothing yeah, left but yeah. water because all the food is gone by the time they yeah. get done with it. And they can do it quick. Like you said, 20, 20 30, 40,000 birds, as ravenous as snows are, they, they'll t- just take it out quickly. Of course, I'm insane, though. I'd have been chasing those snow geese. I was chasing those snow geese around everywhere in that area in those time, in those days. Uh, you're guiding folks all over from Garwood to El Campo to Markham to Bay City and all over. Uh, same areas y'all were in. Let's just go something that's really unique about Thunderbird Hunting Club as well from an aspect that I know from being in a couple of clubs in Arkansas and places like that that's really unique. And I've only seen this really out more out West Coast and California. It's the three-day hunting model. Yeah, so, so what, what, what we've learned, there was a time when we hunted seven days a week. And and so you kind of, as a manager, you sit back and you watch the behavior of your hunters. And you know, everybody's heard of the 90-10 it, it applies to death clubs too. So what was happening is there were a number, not not all of them, but there was a silent or a, a smaller majority or a so smaller minority of folks that were hunting seven days a week. Okay. The vast majority of the club was made up of guys that worked in Houston, you know, were doctors, lawyers, businessmen. Um, they can hunt Saturday. And so you got that smaller group that's sitting there hunting six, seven days. Well, they're they're blowing all the birds off all the ponds. And so over the years, we you we slowly kind of watched what was going on, and and it's kind of hard to to make it you know where one size fits all. But I think we're kind of there, and 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 that one size that fits all is a three day model. And that three day model is we out Wednesday. Saturday and Sunday. So that basically that gives a bird a Monday, Tuesday rest, and it gives a bird the Thursday, Friday rest. And nothing attracts ducks to a pond quicker than other ducks flapping around on the on the on the pond. Because it, one is when they fly over ponds, they literally can see if it's clear water with the food down there. And then if they see birds on the thing, they feel secure and boom, they they they, they suck other birds in there. So you'll have something on the other day. And with that said, down and it, this is applies to our area. It doesn't necessarily apply to Kansas or California or Montana or rivers or whatever. But the birds that we shoot are pretty much the birds we flush out of that pond that morning. And then, and so if you don't have birds sitting on that pond. Odds are you're probably not going to have a great hunt. And so it is imperative that we have birds, you know, coming in these ponds, building up big numbers, and by big numbers. You know, for us to have a decent duck hunt, on average, we need four to five hundred ducks. And if we have a thousand ducks on a pond, that 
pretty much, you know, uh, uh, an indication that the hunters are, are good hunters. They're going to be able to shoot a limit of birds. So you, you would take a thousand ducks and, and it would be no sweat shooting 24 birds. But, you know, if you get some hunters in there that don't understand how to hunt, um, and don't set up on the X, or then they very well may not shoot a limit of birds. So, so I've seen extremes of both. I've seen hunters go into a pond with two, three hundred ducks and shoot a limit of birds. I've seen, you know, new, newbies go into a pond and with a thousand birds on it, not walk out with a limit. So, so part of the process too, what we do with the club is we try to educate everybody and. We educate them in a number of ways. Um, John, you receive my newsletters that I send out every week. We're informing people, you know, where we're seeing birds and and um, how everybody's doing. And then we have these massive scouting um, uh, trips that the managers uh, go on every Tuesday and Friday. And they literally will spend at least a half a day, sometimes a whole day, running all these properties, finding out where the birds are, report that back to the membership. And we really want people to hop right on that X. And then there's a, another ingredient that's really, really important is is we kind of, we're a mix of hunters that come together with different personalities and different backgrounds and different skill sets. And we have to manage them, put them all together and get them to get along. Well, because we shoot so many birds, what happens is it's not competitive. It, we want to, uh, the members help each other. So that's a big part of the success of Thunderbird is this membership is, I don't know how other clubs are doing, but this membership is great from the standpoint that we, we had two openings this year. Those two new members that came into the, the club this year, um, I guarantee you, you know, all, all the old members are going to take them under the wing and they're going to educate them to the process where they're going to be acclimated to the system so quickly that they're going to know the program, how we kill birds, you know, and, and, and they'll come away with a really good product at the end of the day. And, and we couldn't do that without members working together with each other. So. Yeah, that's great. I, I said, I've been involved with clubs before. Well, that's not the case at all. It, it, it you've got people that are really at each other's throats sometimes, and it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting how y'all are really able to manage that many people and, and keep everybody happy. It's it's really pretty cool, and I, and I, I have to get a point to that three day model in a lot of ways success because of the fact that you just keep the pressure off of them again, which is you know can be relentless down there. Like you say, seven days a week, birds are just being pounded on and keeping that pressure off those ponds has got to really up the numbers in the long run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so here's a real simple statement that's kind of like a no-brainer. Ducks don't like to be shot at. But <laughs> right. There, 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 there's a lot of duck hunters that don't get that concept, and they will go out there and just hunt and hunt and hunt. And, you know, it, 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 it literally to get a, a pond to produce, you know, back-to-back hunts, is a hard deal. I mean, it's kind of like you're going down to a fishing hole and you've caught all the rainbow trout out of the fishing hole and expect to go back the second day and catch more rainbow trout. Well, it's the same thing here. They one of the one of the phrases I coined in the early days is as we were trying to you know manage this club is we have a product that flies away and. And unlike, you know, deer hunting where, you know, the deer are going to be, you know, in that pasture or in that woodlot and they may go hide and stuff, but they're still there. Well, our, our product can get up and within 24 hours be on Louisiana if they decide, you know, they don't like what's going on here. So so we try to make them as happy as they can. And it, 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 it dichotomy somewhat from the standpoint that, that on one hand we're shooting at them, but on the other hand these ducks are happy and kind of maybe getting ahead of myself a little bit here. But but we're keeping. Yeah, you know, we I mentioned earlier that we started water wells up this morning. Uh, we literally have water on the ground for these birds nine months out of the year. So if you look at how many days we actually hunt ducks, which is probably about forty five or, or something like that, maybe maybe even less than that. Um, so, you know, a month out of the year we hunt ducks, and the other eight months 
uh, the ducks have free reign to eat, sleep, and do whatever they want on these ponds. And it, it really, really helps the birds, you know. So it's not about the, yeah, we shoot a lot of ducks, but I can guarantee you we're providing a lot of good habitat to really help these birds. And, and not just the ducks, but, you know, all, all the other wetlands-type creatures that are out there from fish to you know, nematodes to, you know, great egrets and you name it. They're, they're all out there using this habitat. You know, I like right, right yesterday. I was out, and there's all kinds of broods of black belly tree ducks and fulvous tree ducks and model ducks. Um, we don't necessarily keep water on all our ponds at this time of year, but we, we left some of it on for various reasons. And one of the reasons we left it on there just to help the birds nesting down here, because right now we're in a drought, and they pretty much like what we, we, we left for them, so. That's a good point. And I got to see this firsthand, folks, on the DU Nation filming is all of the wildlife that that's surrounding these wetland areas. That's a very important point. This is not just for ducks. This is for very, a myriad of species of different birds. You know, like you said, from frogs to snakes to all kind of aquatic life. It, it, these ponds really hold it all. And like... And this is a big breeding area. Mostly everybody thinks about, oh, Canada and all this. But for certain species, black-bellied, whistling ducks, fulvous ducks, model ducks, that, this is our breeding ground, too. Yep, we have a, and, and we actually have some blue-winged teal nesting this year down here, though. So, um, so not real common, but they do nest down here. So. I did see a few blue-wings in the air. That's right. It's helping out a, a, a tremendous amount of wildlife in, in these areas. And so let, let's use that transition. I want to move into that and in talking about the habitat management because that's the whole key to y'all having all the tremendous amount of birds that you have. Uh, so take us through the steps, Todd. We, we we were in a pond just last week that was being built. You, you've, got, you've got maintainers and dirt moving machines everywhere. And just take us through start to finish on how it all comes together. Well, let me, let me, I'll, I'll, st- I'll back up a little bit on, on how a year kind of unfolds. We get through the hunting season, and then the first thing I start looking at is where is the system failing? And by by the system failing, I'm talking about nature damage going into water canals that are you know, spewing water all over the landscape where I don't want it to go to, to erosion, taking down banks um, on ponds. Um, sometimes we've had uh water drilling people come in and rework a water well um to you know get it to flow better so we're in this kind of i'll call it the repair mode that occurs early in the spring that we're trying to um make sure the infrastructure is up and running as best as possible so that when we do start flooding all these ponds um I'm not dealing with repair modes. I'm just dealing with, you know, get, you know, making the habitat. And, um, and then new ponds being built, we typically build them in the springtime. If we wait too long, this ground will turn into concrete if we get into like a bad drought that we're into right now. And the machinery will just bounce off of this stuff like they're trying to, you know, build ponds and with concrete. I mean, it, it we have literally had in the years past, um, midsummer, where we, we can't build duck barns or we can't do anything because the ground's so hard. And and so anyway, so we go into the repair mode and then the prep mode, which we're just about to start any day now. And and let me say this about duck ponds. Every duck pond is different. And everyone has different needs. And you have to understand what those needs are. And it could be the depth of the water. It could be whether you burned it, you shredded it. There is no manual out there. If I wanted to write a book about how to do all this stuff, um, I couldn't do it because every single year is different. And I kind of look at what Mother Nature gives me. And and she gives me a bunch of sprangle tops in a duck pond and I leave that strangle top alone. If you give me another type of aquatic or uh, I leave that alone. Um yesterday we literally had a pond that we caught all that rainwater earlier in the year and, and I pulled the plug on it because I had a, a plant coming up called burrhead, which is not a good plant for anything. It's not good for cattle, not good for duck. 
was taking over the, the whole pond. So we're literally draining that pond and odds are I'll probably bring a tractor in there and I'll, I'll get all that burrweed under, get water on top of it as quick as quickly as I can and stimulate the aquatics to get up before the burrweed comes up and rears his ugly head again. And so, uh, John, we talked about this a little bit in DU Nation, but, but within a handful of sand, uh, soil, is millions of thousands of different seeds in there. And depending on what you do um, to that soil will determine what's going to pop up for the ducks to eat. And, and like I said, every pond's different. I mean, you can't, you can't force one pond to grow something if it's not in the seed base. And a lot of people go out there and they buy food and they plant it. And I, I kind of look at it as kind of a, uh, it, it probably works on smaller ponds, but when you're dealing with half some hundred acre ponds and stuff like that, it's better to go into a pond and manipulate the environment. Like I said, it could be our, our main tool is bringing big, big crackers and disking it. But at times we won't do that. At times I'll, I'll flood, uh, we're flooding a pond right now that has a, a plant in there called, um, dwarf spike rush, which the ducks just love to just, they eat the roots, the, the little seeds on it. Well, we're flooding out right now because it, it's all over the field and, and the cattle will benefit from it too um, when that stuff starts growing up. And so in this particular case, I, I, I elected not to disc it or burn it or shred it. Instead, I went ahead and I'm just flooding it because I know what it's going to do for the ducks, especially if you teal coming down, it's going to be a uh, it may not be, you know, second crop rice, but it's going to be darn close to something that they like. And, um, and then after you're done, you know, getting all the water on the landscape, then you play this kind of dance going around trying to maintain the water at the proper levels. And, and you know, you'll, you'll try to get it, you know, deep enough where, you, where the obnoxious grasses are, are going to come in and choke out the aquatics. And then if you're in a bad route like we're in right now, I mean, I'm, I'm just pumping and pumping and pumping on ponds, trying to keep the aquatics alive in, in, in the pond. And sometimes it's a struggle. You know, I can cal- at the beginning of the season, we calculate, you know, how, how, how many acre feet, you know, comes out of a water well and, and where we're going to um, flood. But sometimes Mother Nature <laughs> puts us really behind her and all that. And, and we just got to keep it going. And and then as the season progresses and food comes up, then I'm looking at the different water levels. So, you know, a, a, a great a blue heron is going to want, you know, deeper water to kind of somewhat feed in. A snow geese wants a little bit shallower water or a pintail wants a little bit shallower water. A teal and a shoveler, they want to skim across, you know, re- really, really shallow water. So we're trying to provide kind of a, a good mixture of habitat down here. I mean, luckily where we are down here, we have, I don't know, I think one year we shot 18, 19 different species of ducks. And, and, and so we're not a, you know, a mallard is not our prime bird and pintails are not our prime bird, you know, and teal on our prime bird. It's a mixture of all the ducks coming down here. And, and so we're trying to provide as much habitat we can with, with a bunch of diversity. And these birds will move around as water levels change and all that. And, um, and as the season progresses, one of the other things we got to do is, and I'm talking about we're in the middle of duck season, that I got to watch the water levels. And so I got to be careful of, of two factors. One is I can't be running around on the duck pond looking at all the duck ponds and spooking all the ducks off of it. So I kind of get feedback from the membership, what's going on in the pond, what's the water level, are there aquatics on the surface, or have the ducks eaten it all out? And as the season progresses, uh, if the ducks have wiped out that, that first two or three inches of, of aquatics, then I'm, I'm pulling the water down so they can reach what's left on the bottom. Or we could get in a situation where Mother Nature dumps, you know, six inches of rain on us overnight. Well, then I'm scrambling trying to drain water off the ponds. And that, that's one of the hard things that people, you know, people have spent all this money pumping up duck ponds. And then suddenly, you know, they got to pull the plug. It's very rare for people to want to go pull a plug on a duck pond and drain off six inches of the water. 
but we will do that if we have to to make make sure those ducks can reach the pond. So it's it's something that as we go into hunting season, we're still constantly maintaining water levels to um, allow the birds to get to the food. Plus, they have to have that shallow water roost in. If the pond is a foot and a half deep, they'll go in there sometimes to roost. But ideally, what bird you know, duck want to roost in is they want to put their foot on the ground. And and so we're trying to provide, you know, a roosting area, preening area, feeding area, um, all to the duck at the same time. That's the ideal duck pond, you know, you, where they don't have to go anywhere. They can just sit there and be content on one duck pond. Man, that's a lot of great information, Todd. It, 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 that huge point that you brought up there in, in the water levels. I see it so much. Like you said, it's so hard to pump up water and spend a bunch of money pumping water and then get a big rain and you're like, oh yeah, well that's great. You know, it's just going to keep that water on that landscape. And then the ducks start quit using it because it's too deep. They can't get to the food and, you know, it, it takes a while for them to get back because to, for the water level to drop. So that's a huge point is that you've really got to watch the water levels closely. Yeah. And, and ducks will leave overnight. I mean, so you get a six inch rain. I mean, they, they intuitively know that it's raining somewhere and new food sources have been opened up for them, you know, like seeds and stuff like that and grasses. They sometimes will just get up and leave overnight. And so you want to try to get them back, back, back in the barn as quick, quick as you can by, you know, getting those water levels down. And one other point that I forgot to mention was muddy water. So, um, uh, down along the coast here, we have, um, a lot of clay and sometimes that clay can get suspended. Well, it's a kind of a kiss of death. If you get, if you're initially trying to start a duck pond and you got muddy water, because that sunlight will not penetrate down to stimulate the plant growth. And in last year, there was probably at least two or three incidents where where Mother Nature just churned up the winds and churned up the water and it all turned muddy on me before the aquatics got going. But I literally opened up the plug and drain the water off the landscape and that's not our that's thousands of dollars going down the drain instantly you know and it, it, it that's a hard deal to do but but i i had to do it because some of these ponds were some of our best producing ponds and and i had to get clear water on there so clear water is really important and and i don't think anybody really has a lot of scientific knowledge about why these the plants down here grow so quickly but but in uh, talking with Todd Marindu, who's a regional manager with DU and stuff, he believes that that when that well water comes out and it hits the landscape, which is like you know an inferno of, uh, out there right now, and they get that cool water on there, you know that sunlight penetrating that cool water just just sets that whole food chain you know off with the the aquatics growing up and everything. So it's uh, that. Uh, that clear, cool well water is real important. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, Todd Marandino, that guy's forgotten more about ducks than I'll ever know. That's <laughs> for sure. Yeah, one of the things I always coined that uh, Marandino said, he said, you know, uh, habitat management is not rocket science. It's much harder than rocket science. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the, there, there is some truth <laughs> That's you know, because right. because because a lot of people just think that, you know, once again, I get back to, you know, what do you do the rest of the year? And I, still to this day, I have members who come down and they just think that, you know, these duck ponds are here all year long and, and, or we just, you know, turn on the water hose and fill them up and pull the plug at the end of the year. And, and they don't realize how much effort goes into it. And some of them do, but some of them don't, you know, and, uh, um, it, it, it it's, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's a labor of love. Right. And on that, we're going to stop for a second, folks, and take a break. But stay tuned for more with Todd Steele. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. 
Learn more at ProPlantSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Hey folks, welcome back to the DU Podcast. We're here with Todd Steele, manager of Thunderbird Hunting Club, southwest of Houston, Texas, near the El Campo area. Would you say that's correct, Todd? Yeah, El, El Campo, all the way down to Palacios, we have kind of a swap of uh, properties that we manage through, through the, that, that region. And this is kind of a, a historic area. Of course, this was, you know, one time the great snow goose, you know, corridor, you know, and speckle too. Um, and, uh, uh, that ancient kind of flyway is Colorado river that they come, they come down on, on both sides of it. And I guess if you look back at the old books and stuff like that, you know, the Colorado river used to just spew, you know, water out of its bank from log jams and everything else. And there were swaths of land that were flooded, you know, 20, 30 miles from the river itself. Um, Migration is is part fueled by a learned behavior and is part fueled by genetic behavior that we don't quite understand. And I still to this day believe that you know these birds are following you know ancient corridors that you know their their ancestors followed. And and you know and proof to that is you know a cold front hits North Dakota and all of a sudden over overnight all those birds get out. Well. <laughs> They have genetically learned that they stick around for North Dakota, you know, blustery, you know, cold front that's going to freeze everything over. They're not going to have any water or food. So, so even to this day, you know, birds will get up and migrate when they get hit by that big cold front. That's not necessarily a learned behavior. I believe it's a genetic behavior that uh, they it just being wired that we got to get out of Dodge. Yeah, that, that's got to be correct. There's just no other way it happens, and especially in mass migrations of birds. They've got to be wired that way, that they're just going to go south. Kid, they really can't rely on their parents or whatever. I don't think to teach them that in a lot of cases. They just they just know, and, and they head and they head farther south. We were, we were talking about flooding areas this time of year. You've already got the pumps going, the wells going down there at Thunderbird. Um, let's talk a bit about moist soil plants and aquatics. I know in this part of the world, stuff like pink smartweed, barnyard grasses, and stuff like that are really good. Um, what's your favorite aquatic plant to see growing up in a project? So there's basically two types of, of duck food down here. One is you know your emergence, which will be your you know, your smartweed and your your barnyard grass, your millets coming up above the surface, and then the other is aquatics. One of the problems that I have down on most of the properties is we have cattle on it, so. The cattle will come often. They won't. They won't hit smart weed, but they will hit you know some of your grasses that are trying to seed out um, and chop down. So over the years, I've learned it's probably better to to try to put put the efforts into managing aquatics than it is the emergence that come up. And then if you and over the years, I've, I've watched birds into this area come down and 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 understand too that we're watching these birds every single day. From 
you know, this time forward, we're going to be out every day seeing what these birds do. We see mass on migration. We watch where they're going to feed, where they're going to roost and all that. And their preference when they come down to this area, if you give them two, two food sources, you know, you give them one with a bunch of barnyard grass and feed it out. And you give them one that's filled up with aquatics um, that's matted up to the surface. They're going to every single time go into the aquatics. They, that's what they like to eat. Um, so it's kind of like a buffet. You go into a buffet and there's steak and lobster and there's some hamburger over there. You're going to go to the steak and lobster. The hamburger, you know, you'll eat that if, if all the steak and lobster's gone. And, and so I kind of look upon the barnyard grasses, um, the smart weed and stuff like that a little bit differently. If they have the choice, they're going to go to aquatic. Now, with all that said, the, 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 the top aquatics that we have down here, there's a plant called Southern Ned. Um, it is a, a, a big one, um, muskgrass, which is actually an algae. Um, they, they like that algae, uh, widgeon grass is another one. Um, widgeon grass is more of kind of a, a coastal plant that comes up and likes a little bit of salinity in, in the water. Um, sago and longleaf pondweed is another one. Um, there is a plant called duck salad, which sounds like, you know, duck's going to keep going crazy on it but they kind of, they that's kind of a, a, a an emergent that comes up it's a kind of a leafy looking lettuce type of plant and they won't hit that immediately but last year we had some big stands of it and when they started chomping down all the other aquatics um then they started hitting that and and so the birds are kind of Creatures of uh, opportunity, and I've seen them go into um, ponds where we have a pond called a plant called sumpweed, which isn't something that you can look up and say, "Oh, that's a great duck food." But I have seen green wing teal just clobber sumpweed at times, only because that's what they had in that particular area to eat, and so they found it, they liked it, and they just you know started going. Another one is a plant called tooth cup, which is a Another emergent had a little red seed on it. Uh, I have seen this in years past where gadwalls will get in there, and gadwalls are mostly kind of associated with eating aquatics, but I have seen them get into tooth cup and, and just, you know, hit it really hard. And so once again, it's kind of a, the opportunity exists, and they, they go after it. Barnyard grass is another good one. So greenling teal, um, more so than them blueing teal, grambling teal, like, you know, seeds, like pintails do at times. And so when the aquatics start getting low, um, they will gravitate towards um, various millets and stuff that are real low where they can reach it real easily. And even even some of the sedges, which, which, you know, I don't really like, but the sedges will sometimes drop, you know, massive amounts of seeds on the ground and the wind will blow it up against one side of a pond. And those birds will go in there and they'll eat that. And in fact, speaking of which, so if you ever ever watch, everybody tells you to hunt on the north side of a pond with a north wind. But sometimes you'll see all the birds on the south end of the pond and you're going, what's up with that? Well, what's up with that is all the seed has blown to that south end and the aquatics they've yanked up is all blown to the south end of the pond with a north wind. And they're feeding heavily down there because that's where all the food is. And so sometimes you have to go to hunt the south end of a pond with a north wind. And, and once again, that goes back to, you know, helping our hunters, our members, um, by scouting and saying, you don't want to hunt the north end of that pond. You want to hunt the south end. I know it's, it's not intuitive to do that, but that's where you need to go because that's where those birds are going to be. And, and the X, and, and I think you're going to cover this a little bit later, John, but, but the X is so important that, that I have seen it, that if you're off of that X by even 100 yards, sometimes your, your hop will, will not be. Those birds know, kind of like going into downtown, and, and you got five or six different restaurants to choose. You go into that one restaurant. Well, the birds do the same thing. They fly over a pond. They know where, the day before where they had good chow sitting in that one restaurant, and they will beeline towards that, that one restaurant to eat. So real important to be on the X. Isn't it the truth? Yeah, let's just go ahead and switch gears to that, Todd. You, I mean, you're a highly experienced duck hunter. I know that country like the back of your hand. And as you said, location is the absolute number one key. And it can't be overstated that if you're off of the spot, 
by it didn't even have to be a hundred yards, fifty yards. Sometimes it it just it's totally going to make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. Aside from location, what do you think is number two as far as duck hunting goes for success? I would say you know we we had world champion duck caller down there, and I watched the birds' behavior, and it doesn't really matter. They're they're more attracted to decoy spread down there than than duck calling, you know, and and this is me speaking. Other people may argue differently, but I would say duck hunting, duck calling in our neck of the woods is probably a factor of maybe 15% of the time. I, I blow a duck call just because <laughs> part of the game, but to be honest with you, either those ducks are going to come in or not. I think decoy spreads are, are probably the second most important. And, and I will often, um, I like big numbers. I mean, I know people out there write articles about, you know, you know, you need to go to smaller spreads late in the season. Uh, that's not the case down here. I mean, you got to give them a different look. They're they're used to seeing six dozen decoys you know, down through the whole flyway, and late in the season, I would say, let, let's say the, the the first the second split, which is beginning of December, I'll start putting out massive spreads. My massive spreads, I mean, you know, two hundred duck decoys. Um, and and these are duck decoys that we don't leave out. We pull them up every single day. And so what I tell the members, is they they kind of grimace when they go to hunt. And they said, "Look, I said we're going from your hundred duck decoys to two hundred. In the big scheme of things, putting out an extra hundred duck decoys is going to take you maybe ten fifteen minutes in the morning, and maybe twenty twenty five minutes in the you know when you're picking them up." So all told, maybe 45 minutes. I said, you, you spent all this money, all this time. What's 45 minutes to have a, a, a superior hunt as opposed to, you know, give them a six dozen or eight dozen duck decoys that they see all the time. So so decoy spreads and and numbers, I think, are the most important thing. And don't, don't clump, clump them together. You got to, you know, if you're out, you know, watching ducks in a park and stuff, you know, they, they're they're Ducks are not all, you know, gathered up around a duck blind. They're they're scattered they're scattered all over the place, and and so you gotta, you know, you gotta spread your decoys out. And you gotta make them look natural, and yeah, it takes a lot more effort to drag them out fifty yards behind your duck blind to get a big wad of decoys behind there. But it 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 really kind of dupes the birds, you know, into thinking this is a real McCoy down there. So um, so I would say. Decoy spreads are probably your second most important, at least down here. Now, if you're up in Arkansas, that's different. You know, calling is probably number, you know, number one. Well, you're calling to a lot of mallards in this part of the world versus down there. Every most of the ducks whistle down there. Let's face it, between the widgeons and the you know, green wings, pintails, you hear a lot more whistling going on than you do quacking. That's for sure. So you can really over quack a lot. Uh, in 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 Texas coast for sure. You can probably just. I think you're right about that Todd and and I can tell you folks that yeah when Todd's talking about decoys I mean he is not a lazy decoy man and he's uh, I think he's schooled a lot of his members into that same principle that the more decoys the better and it really makes a difference though in in the success yeah and 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 so here's another kind of evolution in the club's interest and watch the dynamic of the club as it evolves over the year and it's not necessarily me you know leading the pack it's a it's a pack with leading the pack kind of thing. And and so there was a time when, you know, back in the, you know, seventies and eighties, to get to a duck spot when it was wet, you locked your big four wheel drive truck in there and rutted up the farmers' roads and did your best to get back there without getting stuck. And and so let's fast forward to today, well, you know, members in our club have these big monster polarises with big monster tires on it. And they carry the kitchen sink with them out to the duck blind. In fact, one of the things we do is we, we do have pit blinds in kind of strategic spots. But what we're finding is that um, taking temporary blinds, which are nothing more than a hog panel with fast grass, maybe painted, and some stools, and sitting on that X um, is important. And then taking all your decoys and, and carrying it on that Polaris um, you're basically, like I said, taking the kitchen sink out to the ducks. And 
that is part of the reason we shoot a lot of ducks is because we can do that. And probably if you look back even 15 years ago, we didn't have that kind of technology with our ATVs to be able to yank, you know, drag all that stuff in. And so we were kind of, um, you know, kind of chained the ball to our pit lines that we had out there with, you know, our typical hundred duck decoys out there. And, and we were, trying to force ducks to come into those pit lines. And and so the evolution to today is now we bring what the ducks want to see to where we're feeding. And that's been somewhat key to our success. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we're, we're, we're shooting ducks, but that, that, that was one of the big ones. It's a combination of all those factors. And, and you're right, the UTV, the four-seat Polaris, the K&Ms, all that, has changed the game in such a huge way. When I was a kid, right, it, the three-wheelers first came along. We thought that was the, most, the greatest thing on the face of the earth, <laughs> that you didn't have to walk everywhere. And then the four-wheelers and then the six-wheel Polarises and now the UTVs with, with big beds on them that you can, like I said, you can really carry the kitchen sink into an area where before it was really impossible. Yep, yep, yep. That's uh and and as a good friend of ours, uh, Shannon Hopkins, he used to be the outdoor writer of the uh, Houston Chronicle, said he said these UTVs have extended the duck hunter's you know career or life, whatever you want to call it, probably about fifteen twenty years because if you think back, you know how it was thirty forty years ago, because the days of you know putting on you know red ball you know rubber waders and and a big strap of duck decoys on your back and wade into the marsh, you know, is, you know, a good way to have a heart attack. So. <laughs> that's a young man's game right there. That's you? right. That's right. Yes, sir. I like the the blind concept that y'all have with the cattle panels and the, and the fast grass. It's, it's easy to deploy, easy to, to pick up. And I think more folks would have a lot of success if they would if take a look at that because, and a lot of, the, there's a lot of portable blinds out there in the market that are good. It's just these, I think, really lend themselves to, I don't know how to say it. I mean, just being able to put it on the X quickly, um, more so than having to put together frames and everything else. It, yeah. And, and so, you know, so that that's part of the secret, too, of, of getting on that X and carrying a, you know, say the kitchen sink out there, that you want to be able to deploy the stuff as quickly as possible. Otherwise, you know, you, otherwise you're doing the a thousand you know, rag spread, right? You know, you're you're getting up at three in the morning to put all this stuff up. And so even the decoys, when you think about the decoys that have evolved over the years, so now they have, you know, lightweight, uh, you know, decoys that, you know, have kind of keels that will, you know, flip up. And we have tangle-free, you know, line that really is tangle-free that, you know, you just throw them in the water and you just start scattering them out as quickly as you can. Um, everything you can do to, to speed up that process enables you to put more keeper out in the field and, 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 and helps you to shoot more ducks. I mean, you know, my Polaris that I have, I have, I actually have fishing rod racks on the, the front rack and I can, I can load up, you know, six to eight, you know, robo ducks on the side. And they're all ready with wings attached, and all I got to do is pick them out and stuff. Well, think think back forty years ago. I don't think they had robo ducks forty years ago, but but trying to just drag eight robo ducks on your on your back as you're walking into a marsh was just ne- nearly impossible. So so you know deployment of robo ducks and decoys and you know and and all of that combined is is real effective. And and, and just step take the. Uh, Temporary bind a step further, so so we we camouflage them with with fast grass, and so fast grass is kind of down here. Every everything stays green for a long time, and so one thing you probably want to do is go on there with some green flat green spray paint and try to get it to kind of na- match you know what a, a tougher grass looks like you know on an island out there or something like that. And we take it a step further um, that uh, we cut fresh cane, which is green, and we put that around our duck lines to kind of even break it up even more. So it's just not a flat panel out there. And uh, in fact, this year, um, 
we uh, we bought our know six seven thousand dollars worth of um, bamboo. We planted it, and um, we got an irrigation system and stuff. So we'll have you know in two years we're gonna have fresh bamboo here at our hunting lodge. That that uh, I don't know how long it's gonna last because we're going through a lot of bamboo through the course of the year. But but we we we've literally the importance of bamboo is is so good that that we decided to go ahead and spend the spend the money on plant bamboo and put an irrigation system in and having fresh bamboo right nearby at the lodge. So Yeah, breaking up your outline is huge. If you can get away from the square. You know, that's so right. many duck yep. blinds, you can just pick them out, look out there and cross the field. Oh, that's a blind. You can see it plain as day soaking a duck. And and, and your dog ports, right? So they, they we have dog porches out there too so the dogs can not be standing in cold water. And and it's important to just not have your your dog out there, you know, out there in the open, you know, like a coyote spinning there, and no duck in his right mind wants to land next to a coyote sitting there on a dog porch, right? So so you <laughs> exactly. want to keep that. Now, of course, of course, your dog. I mean, you know, if it's an experienced dog, he's going to be swinging his head three hundred and sixty degrees, you know, throughout the morning, watch for ducks so he can get a jump on. You know, when you do shoot a duck, you got to mark well. You'll you'll find it and stuff like that. So you want to try to you know cover up that you know that dog kind of swinging his head all over the place, look, looking looking for where, where that duck's gonna fall. So that's it. I love that uh, Mo Marsh Invisalab system with a with a stand with a dog blind on it. I think that's one been one of the biggest innovations for retrievers have come along in the last twenty thirty years. Really. Yep. Yep. And 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 so. Is there, is, you know, two years ago, very few members had that, and and now I'm starting to see more and more of them. I'm, we're trying to encourage more and more of them to have those those blinds out there, and and it plus it makes your dog maybe a little bit more steady too that he's inside that uh, inside that enclosure and stuff like that. So that helps a lot. It does. It does. Talking about dogs, I know you're a big retriever guy like me. That's such a huge part of the hunt to me is the dog, and and a well trained dog is a really pleasant experience. Where a not well trained dog is not. And uh, you know, I've I've seen your dogs in action. They're, they're top notch. Yeah, I, we've always said that. Look, the reduct line is not the place you need to be training your dog because you know, a is is you're going to get frustrated with it. And your frustration is not going to change that dog. Um, the the training should have been done throughout. You know, you had all year to train the dog or have a trainer train it. And and trying to train it out in the duck blind is just going to lead to frustration. Plus, it's going to be, you know, very disruptive to the the hop for others in there too. And and they're just you know it's it, there's nothing finer than you know having you know a couple labs in a duck blind that are well-behaved and, and top-notch retrievers. So. Oh, it's it's huge. And nothing nothing will get you invited on more hunts than having a really good dog, and nothing will have your phone never ring again than having a dog that's no good. <laughs> that, that's that that's true. That's true, you know. So, <laughs> And, and, and that, that's part of the process that, you know, we, we talk about managing hunters and stuff like that, but it's one of the things that we have to very subtly, you know, not just myself, but managers too, say, look, you know, you, you, may I politely hand you a rope to your breaking dog so your dog won't break anymore? I mean, and, and so you got to, you know, make the member understand that, you know, you know you're not going to get invited in that group of hunters if your dog is a derelict dog going out there doing, you know, running around like a with his head chopped off um, and, and breaking all the time. Um, so uh, uh, it, it, it's important to, you know, ha- have a, have a good companion out there. But like, like you said, it's just the, uh, it's part of, you know, I, I don't know how people, well, I've, I've had members stop duck hunting because their dog died. I mean, that's how important um, dogs are to people. And, and I've always, I've had lab my whole life. I had to put, put down a 14 year old lab earlier this spring and um if i didn't have another lab in the in the bread basket or in the, you know on on the ground um there is a good likelihood i just say i'm not gonna duck hunt anymore but but i've always learned that okay so as that older lab is getting on his last leg you better have another lab you know ready to go and it, it's kind of heartbreaking to 
you know, leave your old lab behind and have the young buck out there retrieving birds. Part of the process of, I guess, part of the the pain of having a <clears throat> having a companion you've had for so many years out there with you. So, yeah, that's that's very true. I've gotten to the point where I like to. By the time my dog's like five or six, you know, have have a young one coming up. Uh, just you know, kind of time it out. You know, like I said, they don't. They it's it's a shame they don't last uh, nearly as long as you'd want them to. Uh, they they give everything they got to you, and uh, just you know, retrievers are are such great animals. Point dogs, I mean, dogs period are, are great animals, but uh, retrievers have just you know the special bond that they have with the hunter is, is unbelievable. Uh, man, it's been great, Todd. I tell you what, I'm gonna close this out. I like to do this with a lot of the guests is talk about a hunt that really sticks out in your mind for whatever reason uh it could be a great hunt bad hunt something crazy happened anything that just pops into your head right off the top yeah yeah so so you know you do this every year and you think you've seen everything there is in the waterfowl world and 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 this isn't a duck and i've had a lot of great duck hunts. my wife and i were down i would say it was probably october and we were, you know, we were doing our typical run on all our ponds, checking water levels and plant growth and all that. And we witnessed a major migration of birds. And, and we've seen lots of migration of birds coming in. But this one was just absolutely phenomenal because we were in a drought throughout the Midwest. Um, Texas was in a drought. Um, not a lot of water on the landscape down here. So these birds were looking for, you know, like I said before, when they fly over, they can see good habitat down below, and it was thousands upon thousands. And I'm, when I say thousands, there were there, there were times we look we would look up in the sky this evening that we would see thousands of pintails and gadwalls and redheads. I mean, just just plummeting out of the sky, just off the, and no circling. I mean, they just they just would just just roar to these parts because they just had migrated. You know, who knows where for you know twelve eighteen hours. And they were exhausted. They want to get drinking water. And we watched this for hours. I mean, just, just watching this, the birds come in. And then as we were walking out, the teal started coming in. And, and they, they, they came in like freight trains, literally, I mean, waves of them, you know, two to three hundred at a time, 30, 40 feet over ahead. You know, the sun was coming up or the sun was sitting down and everything was red and you just silhouetted those birds and they were just pouring over our head and you know like i said you you do it a long time and you sit there and go i've seen it all it is quite fascinating to see a mass migration now all the stars have to align for it to happen that's the key and i think this past year like i said the dry conditions in the midwest really they didn't have anywhere else to go they just they came farther south quicker than they have in in the last few years and when catching that mass migration is, is something special that's for sure well todd uh, thanks so much for being on the du podcast this uh, this has been great and, and very educational well thank you appreciate it and folks you know, like i said with, i'm not sure exactly when it's going to come out within the next couple of months or so you can see that habitat film we put together with with todd and uh, one of our uh, guys uh, on the ground down there in, in production limit taylor abshire he's a, <clears throat> a local kid down there and uh has really done a tremendous job working with the texas prairie wetlands project and uh local landowners to really develop some great habitat on the ground and uh, we really appreciate what he does. And we'll be back, Todd. It, it won't be it won't be too long. It'll be back in December. We'll be back down there filming with you again. Yes, sir. L- looking forward to it. That's going to be fun. We can revisit some of the same places we, we filmed this past time in the summertime. Take a look at them now and see the birds on the ground and really see the, the fruits of your labor. It's going to be fantastic. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the DU Podcast. And once again, thanks for supporting Wetlands and Waterfowl Conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. 
Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 